As Kevin said, we are in our series in Deuteronomy, but we're also taking this time in Deuteronomy to specifically focus on what we're calling the Green New Covenant, and we're doing it in two parts. But I don't want to lose anybody from the start, and I know we have some people who haven't been regularly here for the series, so let's do just a very, very quick, very high-level recap. So we are in a time period. We're dealing with a text that is... Uh, is describing events that occurred about a millennium and a half before Jesus's time. Uh, It tells Israel's story from them being rescued from slavery in Egypt. Uh, It covers the time period of them being uh, in the wilderness for 40 years, and they find themselves at the end of that 40-year period on the cusp of entering the promised land. So the book of Deuteronomy is a collection mostly of Moses's speeches while they're at this cusp, ready to enter the promised land. And it gives them time to take stock of where they've, been, where they've been, remember what their covenant with God is, and use that to shape the way they're going to live when they enter that land. Within the book of Deuteronomy, we're at the part of the covenant that explicitly talks about the, how the relationship with God that Israel has is intimately connected to Israel's relationship with its land. And we're going to read through the text right now where specifically this is laid out. So if you, can, uh, if you want to follow along, go to Deuteronomy chapter 11, and I'll start reading in verse 8. Observe, therefore, all the commands I am giving you today, so that you may have the strength to go in and take over the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, and so that you may live long in the land the Lord swore to your ancestors to give to them and their descendants, a land flowing with milk and honey. The land you are entering to take over is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you planted your seed and irrigated it by foot as as in a vegetable garden. But the land you are crossing the Jordan to take possession of is a land of mountains and valleys that drinks rain from heaven. It It is a land the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are continually on it from the beginning of the year to its end. So if you faithfully obey the commands I'm giving you today to love the Lord your God and to serve God with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will send rain on your land in its season, both autumn and spring rains, so that you may gather in your grain new wine and olive oil. I will provide grass in the fields for your cattle and you will eat and be satisfied. Be careful or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you, and God will shut up the heavens so that it will not rain, and the ground will yield no produce, and you will soon perish from the good land the Lord is giving you. Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates so that your days and the days of your children may be many in the land the Lord swore to give your ancestors, as many as the days that the heavens are above the earth. It is a powerful blessing and curse to frame how they're going to think about entering the land. Now, there are themes that are all related in this discussion about Israel and the land and weather and climate and crops. You may think about it in other terms when you're not thinking about it in biblical language. You may call it environmental justice. 
uh, creation care, climate justice. There are all kinds of terms that are used to describe it. But I think the word justice is fully appropriate to describe the magnitude of what we're talking about today. Often when Bible writers use the phrase God's justice or God's righteousness, it's the same word, uh, same underlying Hebrew word that's talking about the, that concept. When it talks about God's justice, in particular what it often means is God's faithfulness to God's covenant. In other words, God is just or God is right or God is fair because God keeps God's promises to God's covenants. That is what we're talking about. And you will see that unfold in our discussion today. So when we talk about this covenant, there are uh, three different angles that I'm going to focus on today. One is we're going to unpack this whole concept of this covenant and its blessings and curses by talking, one, what it looks like for God's people, for us to live up to and be blessed by this covenant. We're also going to talk about what it looks like for us to fail to live up to and be cursed under this covenant. And last, we're going to talk about what it looks like when God is faithful to this covenant, even when we're not. That's going to be our discussion today, so that by the end of it, you will know as a follower of Jesus what your place is in the story that God is telling about us and creation, about humanity and its habitat. For part two next week, Pastor Kevin is going to focus on how, what a follower of Jesus' response should be given this story that we all understand in 2019, here and now, facing climate change, facing pollution, facing lead poisoning, facing all of the climate atrocities, environmental atrocities that we face today. What is the right way for a follower of Jesus to respond amidst the, the environmental injustice that we're facing? But first, today, we're going to talk about our story and our place in it. The way that I want to frame the discussion about these covenant blessings, to give you an idea of where these Bible writers are getting at when they describe what it's like to live in a land that God has blessed, that God is causing to flourish, is to think of it as Earth 2.0. It's not Earth the way that you experience it today. It's Earth the way God intends for it to be or God hopes for it to be. A great place to start in understanding this covenant is actually not in Deuteronomy itself. You start at the very beginning because this has been a part of humanity's story all along. In the very first chapter of the Torah in Genesis 1, when God creates humanity as God's crowning achievement over creation, God sets humanity up with a purpose or a mission. Here is how the writer describes it. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. This passage has been an important one in discussions that followers of Jesus have had in this country globally about what our role should be uh, amidst the uh, consequences that our behaviors have on the environment around us. Now, if you're like me, there is a part of you that when you read this language, at least in English, it kind of hits you the wrong way. It sounds aggressive because it highlights the words subdue and rule over as if our relationship with creation is one where we exploit it for our gain. It is there to serve us. Indeed, when you think about Genesis 1, what the, the way many scholars have pointed out uh, that humanity is fitting in this story is that humanity as an image of God is reflecting God's role as a king over the world. So we are kings as placed to reflect God's image onto earth 
through earth. And so when you see language like this, that our position is to subdue the earth and to rule over it, you might be tempted because of how we think of of uh, subduing and ruling to think of an image like this, right? This is culturally how we think about kings and power. It is about exploitation. It is about dominance. It is about doing what you can to get yourself ahead at the cost of people around you. And often that has very much been the posture that many people, including followers, Je- uh, followers of Jesus, have had about the environment itself. The idea is that these resources exist, animals, land, the air, space. It exists to serve us, to help us do what we want to do. And I can understand, if this is your idea of what it's like to be in power, why you would be, you'd feel an aversive reaction when you look at uh, God's command for humanity to fill the earth by subduing it and ruling over it. But really, uh, if you know God, and if you know the way the story unfolds in Genesis and throughout the rest of the, the biblical narrative, you know that that's not at all what it looks like when God rules over the world or when God subdues creation. In fact, the very next verse, right after God gives that commission in Genesis, goes like this. I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. That image is beautiful. It also is pointing out that whatever you thought about, you know, uh, subduing the earth involving like killing animals or exploiting them for your gain, that does not occur in this Genesis account here. The ideal epic image that this author is creating of the world the way that it ought to be involves humans and animals all being vegetarian. There's a harmony that exists in this Genesis account that is everything but gory and power-hungry and exploitative. In fact, in the next chapter, the, the author tells this creation story from a slightly different angle, but again describes humanity's purpose that God has placed humanity in as like this. The Lord God put the man in the garden of Eden to take care of it and to look after it. That pair of words can be translated in a bunch of different ways. Another way that it's described often is tend to the garden and keep it, um, cultivate it, uh, cultivate it and protect it. Uh, All of those are different kind of words to describe this. Really, the the point of the matter is, is that this is language that's nurturing language. In fact, this phrase, this unique combination of these two words in the underlying Hebrew, when it occurs in other parts of the Bible and other parts of the law, it's actually used to describe how the priests of, uh, of the Levite tribe were commissioned to take care of the temple. In other words, Taking care of and looking after a space is what you do with sacred, holy, entrusted place. Again, anything but dominance and exploitation. In fact, when we did our children's blessing, when we say, may the Lord bless you and keep you, that's one of the words that are reflected here. This is a, these are words that are inherently about cultivation and growth and flourishing. Now, this is not just the way that 
the uh, Israelites were commanded to think of their own epic backstory in its beginning. Although the story of humanity's relationship with animals does take a very hard turn very fast, a few chapters later in Genesis, we get to the point where violence and oppression is a ubiquitous part of human experience. And this is when the famous story of Noah and the flood enters. And after the flood, there's this uh, you know, famous sign you may have heard of. It's called the Rainbow Covenant. That's the description that we give to God establishing a new covenant with Noah for how things are going to be after that flood has occurred. And interestingly enough, in that, flood, in that covenant, that is where God acknowledges or concedes that humans Praying upon animals for food will be a part of what creation is like. But even then, in that description of the covenant, God acknowledges that the relationship that animals have with humans in that context will be a fear and dread. And there's this discussion about how for all of the blood that is shed from humans to humans or eaten by humans of animal blood will be accounted for. That's how God describes it in that covenant, that we will have to answer for that kind of blood that's shed. This is far from ideal, from how God wants things to be. This is God working within the violent systems that we participate in. Even with that violent system of kill or be killed, uh, eat or be eaten, uh, throughout Israel's history, they still were able, they never lost hope or lost sight of this original image of how humanity was supposed to be or how humanity was intended to be. In fact, often you will hear Bible writers like psalmists sing songs that talk about God's vision of harmony between human and animals. Here's a a psalm that uh, presents this very story. But your loyal love, Lord, extends to the skies. Your faithfulness reaches the clouds. Your justice is like the strongest mountains. Your judgment is like the deepest sea. Lord, you save both humans and animals. This passage in particular, I think, is very helpful because it uses a lot of the phrases that we've talked about so far. It uses the phrase justice, but it connects it tightly, like we've said, to God's loyalty or God's faithfulness to God's own promises. And then you realize in reading this that God's covenant extends not just for the benefit and flourishing of humans, but for the benefit and flourishing of animals as well. Animals are saved in this description that the psalmist offers. So in Israel's epic backstory, in Israel's present experience, and even in Israel's future, when Israelites thought about the world as it was going to be, where God was pushing Israel's story forward, when they talked about images of God restoring the entire earth to the way that it should be, those images consistently relied on language about animal and human harmony. Here's an example. The prophet Hosea, in using a restoration images, says, In that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field. That's a covenant with the animals. The birds in the sky and the creatures that move along the ground, bow and sword and battle, I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. 
That is where Israel's story is headed. That's where the earth's story is headed, according to these prophets. Isaiah, in a similar restoration passage, says, uh, says something to the effect of, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and the little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. Infants will play near the hole of the cobra. Young children will put their hands into the viper's nest. They will never harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That image is both profound and funny, right? Like we think through, this is how all-encompassing the image is of harmony. I think there's an, uh, often an aversive reaction that comes when we see uh, uh, a restoration image like this because of how far it is from our current relationship with animals and nature. We inherently often see it as one of hostility and antagonism and fear and dread, but that's not how this image is, uh, is described by Isaiah. We routinely downplay actually images like this because, uh, we, uh, because of the consequences that it would have on the way that we live uh, our lives. So for example, if, you, uh, uh, if so far you've been catching a subtext then maybe am I saying that we should, as followers of Jesus, aware of where this story is headed, be vegetarians? Uh, the answer is yeah or no. I don't know. The thing is, we have to think about this, right? So I personally am not a vegetarian right now, but I got to tell you, when I think about this story, about where our place is in the narrative that God's telling, don't you have to think twice? And if on top of the story that God is telling and the way things ought to be, and on top of that, if we find out that cows significantly contribute to global warming with their burps and farming cows is a significant drain on natural resources, would you consider eating fewer burgers? Now, I know that some of you are saying, but Omer, that all sounds great, but you know, Jesus ate meat, and Paul said it's okay to eat meat, and I'm on the paleo diet, or the keto diet, or the whole 30 diet, or the whole 40 diet. That's the one where I think you can only eat 40 slices of bacon a day. Either way, the idea is we are so invested, so invested in our lives, in a, in a relationship with animals that does involve relating to them in a way that seems out of consideration or seems disconnected to the way Bible writers often describe it. In fact, we, are, we downplay or forget these images so much that we uh, skip over them or don't even remember them when they occur, occur in other narratives. So for example, you all, uh, some of you may be very familiar with a bizarre story uh, early in Jesus's ministry where he's alone in the wilderness after his baptism for 40 days and he is tempted by Satan and he actually has, so he has this battle with Satan and defeats Satan and is ministered to by angels. We often remember all those bizarre details, right? That Satan was involved, that Jesus somehow uh, did not eat very much or anything for 40 days and 40 nights, and that how cool would it be that angels were ministering to him during that time? One thing, though, that we might forget is that Jesus wasn't alone, was he? The Gospel of Mark actually includes what I think is the most intriguing line of this entire scenario, and it actually says that Jesus was chilling in the wilderness with the wild animals. That's who he was with 
when he was there. This is uh, reflected famously in uh, in 16th century painting of Italian Jesus, apparently bored by his uh, relationship <laughs> with the animals in the wilderness, because apparently it's you know it's nothing new for him to defeat Satan, be ministered to by angels, and peacefully chill with with animals in the wilderness. But the reality is, is that this image, the image that the Gospel of Mark provides of Jesus in the wilderness, for many interpreters, is connected directly to these other images of when we see the world as it, is, as it ought to be, it will involve human harmony with wild animals around. So people often look at this story and they will say, that is Jesus living right in his present in the, uh, as if the world to come has already arrived. This is kingdom work. We're doing this whenever you have animals of hostility living together, like dogs and cats. I know that we have some sparkers, Sidney and Adil, they are both pet and dog owners, and their pets get along great. Do we have any other sparkers who own uh, both uh, uh, cats and dogs for pets? Do we? No? Bless you. That's kingdom work. I'm allergic to both. You're doing it for me. That's amazing. That is, when you have animals like that in hostility living together, you are showing the world the way it ought to be. We have to take images like this very seriously. Now, I think there's a, there's a special challenge in trying to take these images very seriously because we have to bridge a very far gap from the way the world tells us that power works to way, the way God reveals power working. It is peace. That's how it works. Now, there is a, um, a famous quote that I think many of us are familiar with that I think you have to let the full weight of that quote sit with you, right? So many of you are familiar with this quote from Gandhi, the greatness of a nation and its moral progress can be judged by the way it treats its animals. One sad thing, side note, that I have to tell you, in trying to find the, the source material for this quote, I couldn't, and I actually discovered that it's probably not Gandhi who said it. <laughs> And it's actually some, you know, white Christian theologian from the 18th, 19th century. And uh, I know that makes this quote way less cool, but we should sit with the actual, the, the force of the point itself. And I don't think it's a coincidence that a follower of Jesus reflected on our relationship with animals in this way. I think the stakes are very high in this scenario. And yet, when you, when you let a quote like this sink in, you do have to ask yourself, what does your current relationship with animals say about, you know, the, the moral progress of this nation? What does it say about your own moral compass? And again, I, I, I understand the weight of getting defensive when uh, we're confronted with messages like these because we have so much to lose, so much to change about the way we live our lives if we really let messages like this sink in. I think that the, the aversive reaction that we tend to have uh, towards the most peaceful way we can relate with animals, I think was captured really well in this um, uh, clip from Ellen DeGeneres' uh, latest, um, her stand-up special 
And the, so just as a setup, the, right before uh, this clip that I play, she actually talks about her experience dealing with all the homophobia in the entertainment industry when she first came out. And she talks about how through her patience and skill and grace, she was able to have a super successful career and win people over to her, even though she had come out as a lesbian in the 90s. So then she, she takes that as the backstory and then pivots hard, more closer to the subject that we're talking about so today. It turns out they'll watch a lesbian during the day. They, uh... <laughs> so now everybody's pretty cool with the fact I'm gay. Everybody's fine with that. The one thing that people get really upset about is when they find out I'm vegan. Oh, boy. <laughs> You're vegan? Where do you get your protein? Why do you care where I get my protein? <laughs> Where do you get your riboflavin? <laughs> it's hard to be vegan. If, if you, you go to a restaurant, unless it's a vegan restaurant, they don't know what to do. They, you know, you say, I'm vegan, so, um, well, then you can't have the chicken. No, can't have the chicken. Um, I'll get the asparagus. Well, that comes with Parmesan cheese. Can you do it without? Mm. Mm. <laughs> All right, I'll just get the salad then. Well, that's soaked in ham juice. <laughs> Why? That's how we do it. <laughs> I'm not really vegan. I say it for the joke, but I'm not. I, I, so. Oh, look, look how happy you are. Oh my God, you're so happy I'm not vegan. Thank God, Ellen, I was trying to laugh along with the vegan bit, but... <laughs> and all the vegans are like, oh, Ellen! You were helping us for a minute there. So this experience that she shares resonates a lot with my own when I have reflected on this kind of narrative, this narrative of humanity and our relationship with creation and relationship with animals, where when I'm talking to somebody, sharing my thoughts, letting the weight of what I'm saying sit with them, they will ask, well, are you a vegetarian? And when I say no, they'll immediately, it's as if the force of what I'm saying is let go. Like, well, if you're not, then why should I take seriously what you're saying? The reality is, is I don't know what to tell you. This is hard. This is something that we have to think through as a community. We have to sit, uh, we have to be very conscious about it. And the reason that I think it's so hard is because instead of moving towards Earth 2.0, the way God intends things to be, we've been moving in the opposite direction. Our resistance to messages like this is really a symptom of how much we've fallen short of a green covenant with God. So for that, we're going to have to actually look at the other side of this covenant. We're going to have to look at the curses or the ways that we have fallen short of this blessing. One way to think about it that would be helpful, and I think Pastor Kevin is going to build on this next week, is a global community of scientific researchers in the field of climate science use this, uh, this idea of two degrees Celsius as a shorthand to describe the, uh, the, um, the amount of uh, temperature increase that the earth is on trajectory to experience. And that if we cross that threshold, we will uh, experience many irreversible consequences. And uh, th this is the story, this is the narrative that we are living in right now. 
Now, in already we're experiencing some of the consequences of uh, this climate warming. So, for example, you all may be familiar with uh, this, our own experience in California or in the Midwest, for those of you who are familiar with it. And um, there's, uh, the hurricanes are a part of this story as well, becoming more frequent. Droughts. All of these images are, are symptoms of this underlying problem that we're experiencing. The part that I think is the most devastating in this story that we're living in, in these curses that we're experiencing for how we've treated the land, is that these curses disproportionately hurt poor people, people who cannot fend for themselves. So, they, so there are studies now that talk about how both in the United States and globally, um, poor people or people from vulnerable communities will be the ones who will experience this, uh, the effects of climate change the most. They'll experience it in three ways, the way this literature summarizes it. One is uh, poor people are more likely, disproportionately more likely to be exposed to these events that are caused by global warming. They're more likely to be susceptible. So when they are hit by these experiences that are caused by global warming, they're, they're more susceptible to it, and they're less able to recover when those events happen. If you're following the storylines for the Hurricane Dorian, you know what it's like for the people who are most vulnerable to be most affected uh, by these events. Now, one of the things that really frustrates me with stories like this is that when you take stock uh, with the reality that it was people in power, people with wealth, people with means, who created the technologies that unintentionally at first, but now for sure, have contributed to these dire climate circumstances, the people who have contributed it to it the most are the ones who will likely feel the effects of it the least, at least for a very long time. And in fact, the way that many privileged people look at this problem is instead of thinking about it as an opportunity to live up to a covenant, there is a secular version of this story that is not very different from the escapism of the often Christian version of this story where who cares what's going to happen to this earth, uh, we got to escape it or we're going to escape it uh, anyway. Um, there, there are many movies and stories that capture our imagination in the sense. Interstellar was a beautiful movie. And if you remember actually the, the uh, impetus for why the characters in that movie have to leave earth and create a settlement somewhere else, it's because the earth actually gets overrun by natural disasters. The, uh, the uh, more real-life scenario, we have uh, billionaires like uh, Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or Richard Branson who are all involved in space exploration programs. Many times they explicitly state the reason that they want to explore these other places or to colonize Mars or, or set up a home in Mars is because of climate change, because the Earth is, uh, is possibly heading towards a future in which it will be, uh, it, we won't be able to inhabit it anymore. Then uh, you can understand, though, right, when you think of the backdrop of poor people being disproportionately affected by climate change, that this image looks like a bunch of middle-aged, rich, white dudes escaping the problems that their system has contributed to. That is devastating to me. And I think that there is a, there's a way of bringing home this connection between economics and the environment 
and animals and the land and people that I think will do a great job of bringing it home because the story that we are living through now of the way economics correlates or interconnects with environmental justice is very much the story that Israel lived through in their covenant with God. So to set it up, we first should understand this concept in the Torah about what's called a Sabbath rest. So many of you are probably familiar with a Sabbath rest that many Jews practice within a week where you, you work for six days and you rest on the seventh day. And in the, you know, in the narrative, it mirrors God's creating the world in seven days and then uh, six days and then resting on the seventh. But there's also this concept of a Sabbath year where Israel as a community would work for six years and then rest on the seventh year. And then there's a concept of a jubilee year where they would repeat this cycle of, of uh, working for six years, resting for a seventh year, repeat that cycle seven times. And then there would be an ultimate rest for another year in the 50th year that's called jubilee. The way that the Torah describes it is, for six years, you should plant crops on your land and gather in its produce. But in the seventh year, you should leave it alone and undisturbed so that the poor among your people may eat. What they leave behind, the wild animals may eat. Built into the Torah was this understanding that, yes, you will want to use creation to be economically profitable. You will want to use it to serve you. But you have to give the land time to rest. It is not here for your full exploitation. There is rest that is built into this world, and that rest comes directly at a cost to your profits. Because when that land rests, it is there to serve the most vulnerable people, the people who benefit from the economics of the land the least most of the time. Leviticus fleshes this out further. It says, whatever the land yields during the Sabbath year will be food for you, for yourself, your male and female servants, and the hired worker and foreign guests who live among you, as well as your livestock and the wild animals in your land. That is a profound loss to one's bottom line if we're thinking about it in Silicon Valley terms. We're so used to thinking about optimization, right? You get everything you can out of everything you work on for as little as possible. That is efficiency. The reality is, is that that in, uh, when, we, when we look at creation that way and treat creation that way, is a devastating long-term strategy. The, the way that Israel experienced their, the, the curses when they fell short of living up to this covenant actually ties together how poor people and the injustice, the environment, how all of that is connected. So the way to set it up is um, the, the prophet uh, Jeremiah, when Israel is facing exile, um, to, into Babylonian captivity, he describes the exile in this way. So when Israel failed to live up to its covenant, much in the way that we just read at the beginning in our text, the way the curses would, would uh, fall out for Israel, it would be that the land was in, uninhabitable, that Israel would be removed from that land. So towards the end of Israel's history, before Babylonian captivity, they got a message from the prophet Jeremiah describing why they were in this plight that they were in. Jeremiah says, the king will never return, the king of Israel. He will die where he's been exiled and never see this land again. 
How terrible for King Jehoiakim, who builds this house with, with corruption and his upper chambers with injustice, working his countrymen for nothing, refusing to give them their wages. He says, I will build myself a grand palace with huge upper chambers, ornate windows, cedar paneling, and rich red decor. Is that what makes you a king? Having more cedar than anyone else? Didn't your father, King Josiah, eat and drink and still do what was just and right? Then it went well for him. He defended the rights of the poor and needy. Then it went well for him. Isn't that what it means to know me, declares the Lord? But you set your eyes and heart on nothing but unjust gain. You spill the blood of the innocent. You practice cruelty. You oppress your subjects. A couple chapters after this declaration in Jeremiah... Jeremiah tells Israel that because of this, because of this systemic corruption within Israel, this systemic exploitation of its most vulnerable people, they will be taken into captivity in Babylon for 70 years. Now, after that 70-year period of exile is over, as God promised, Israel is allowed to return home, is allowed to return from Babylonian exile and re-inhabit that land of Israel. Now, when they do, they take the time, so in their opportunity to re-enter the promised land, just like they're doing in Deuteronomy, they take stock of their history, and they actually rewrite their history in such a way where they have a new sense of meaning and understanding for why they ended up in exile in the first place and what they can do to prevent exile from happening again. So this, this uh, rewriting of history is recorded in what's called the book of, uh, books of first and second Chronicles. So this is the, the text where this story is told. And towards the very end of Second Chronicles, when it gets to the part where Israel is reflecting on its own history, thinking back at that economic injustice that they visited on their own land to, talk, to think about why they ended up in the 70 years of exile that they did, here is how they describe, here's how they reflect on that experience. And finally, the king of Babylon exiled Babylon, exiled to Babylon anyone who survived the killing so that they could be his slaves and the slaves of his children until Persia came to power. This is how the Lord's word spoken by Jeremiah was carried out. The land finally enjoyed its Sabbath rest. For as long as it lay empty, it rested until 70 years were completed. When they reflect on the economic injustice that they invoked uh, onto Israel, the way they thought about it was those were years that we did not let our land rest. We exploited the land. We took advantage of the land. We did not trust God to provide for us during that time. That is where a single-minded devotion to optimization and profits gets us. Now, the way forward for us is going to have to take stock of how the economy, the environment, animals, and humanity are all related. There is a sense of a shared fate that we all have. Is there not one that has been lived out in the biblical story, one that we're living out today? The way God, to me, most powerfully reveals what God is doing about the situation that creation is in is revealed in Jesus Christ himself. The Apostle Paul, when reflecting on what God has done through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and ascension, 
talks about the way that the, the earth, even though it is subjected to death and decay, is ultimately defeated through Jesus' love and Jesus' peace and Jesus' justice. Here's how the Apostle Paul describes it when he starts with the centrality of the resurrected Jesus. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first crop of the harvest of, the, uh, of those who have died. Since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead came through one too. In the same way that everyone dies in Adam, the first human, so everyone, death is part of the universal human experience, so also everyone will be given life in Christ. There is a connection here where the fate of Jesus is the fate of all of us who are in Jesus. It is one where death and decay and exploitation is not the final word on where we are headed. And that is not the final word for followers of Jesus either. Because in another letter, the apostle Paul makes one more connection. He says, the whole creation waits with breathless anticipation for the revelation of God's sons and daughters. Creation was subjected to frustration in the hope that the creation itself will be set free from slavery to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of God's children. We know that the whole creation is growing Owning together and suffering labor pains up until now. And it's not only creation, we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first crop of the harvest also grown inside as we wait to be adopted and for our bodies to be set free. Add on to the economy, the environment, animals, the land, humanity. Now we have Jesus, the church, and all creation. It is all interconnected. And injustice in one of these spaces wreaks havoc on the justice and peace that exists in other spaces. We cannot escape this. Brothers and sisters, the earth is sick. It is in bondage, more so now than when the Apostle Paul wrote that letter. The earth is turning up the heat it's groaning, crying out to God, hoping that we will come to our senses, we'll come to our calling, come to our covenant. And Mother God's got Mother Earth's back. God has made promises to this planet, and God will be faithful to God's promises. God is keeping track of every hair on your head, as Jesus said, of every sparrow that falls to the ground, and yes, of every molecule of carbon that we release into the atmosphere. We will have to account for every single one of these things because God is faithful to God's promises. As our text today said, God's eyes are on the land continually from the beginning to the end. And let's be clear, God's not going to destroy the earth. We are fully capable of doing that ourselves precisely without God. That is what wrath looks like. It is a self-inflicted wound despite God, not because of God or through God. And let's be even clearer, we're not going to destroy the earth. We're going to destroy ourselves. That is what's at stake. And then the earth will have its Sabbath rests. But is that really how this story is supposed to go? Is what it takes for the earth to be set free from bondage, our self-destruction? Did it have to be that way? Or do followers of Jesus, in covenant with God, as God's representatives on earth, have something to say? Do we know something about being set free from bondage, about being made alive from death and decay, about being made from the earth for the earth? 
Can we tell the world a different story? I think we can. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for everything you've given us. You are wonderful and amazing and powerful and beautiful and just. God, help us to understand better how to relate to everything around us, how to humble ourselves, to lead like you, to take the lead in being as kind as we possibly can and loving as we can and as ruthlessly in opposition to injustice as we can to set this creation free from its bondage. Lord, we are in love with where this story is headed. We're in love with what you're doing with the earth. Please encourage us, help us in your spirit. Put us on your side. Work through us to do everything you need us to do. Help us live up to our calling and up to our covenant. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.